This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, How man. are you, buddy? How are you? I'm chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I can't complain about the day. Um, just got back from Chicago. 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 I uh, just got back from Chicago. I am the godfather of my nephew, so I was there for the baptism. Cool, cool. He got his water. He Dope. got his water. And mm-hmm. um, in true Zamoda fashion, right before the baptism, like right before the water was going to go on his head, he shat himself. <laughs> <laughs> it was on tape, too. It's very funny. That's Just funny. like He's like, name of the Father, you are blessed with God. <laughs> and then the priest even started laughing. <laughs> that was uh that was um you know the 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 original sin leaving his body i guess right yeah <laughs> yeah a good one um you but what's up your with sister you? that yeah <laughs> what's up with you nothing man i'm I'm pretty pumped uh there's um something that i'm pretty interested that coming out this weekend uh and uh some of you who are fans of the show might know that i follow the hashtag free britney movement um you know, we're talking about Britney Spears here for those of you who are totally unaware. Um, and, you know, Netflix is making a show uh, about uh, this whole free Britney saga and what's going on with Britney. So I recommend everybody watch it so that we can all know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about when I bring this shit up. Um, but it, the, the long and short of it, for those of you who are totally out of the loop, uh, Britney Spears for pretty much ever has been under what's called a conservatorship. Uh, that her father runs, which basically means, you know, for all legal intents and purposes, uh, she can't do anything. Uh, they they claim that she has dementia. Um, I tend to disagree because she's put out several albums and has been able to you know, do shows on uh, residency in Las Vegas and all this other stuff. So seems like something kind of difficult for someone with dementia to do. Um, but... Uh, don't take my word for it. You know, you can watch the film and you know, make your own decisions. But personally, I'm hashtag free Britney or team Britney. So, yeah. They say that team. she has dementia? I've, that's that's what the conservatorship says. Huh? But uh, I don't think they have any, any good that. That doesn't sound right. Isn't no. she younger than 40 still? Yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, like in very rare cases, it's possible to get like super early onset dementia. But like... It's such a stretch. I mean, like I mentioned, she's put out albums. She's like singing and dancing regularly, you know, like she's like doing shit, you know. It doesn't seem like something someone with dementia would would be able to do very easily. Well, the whole thing is very sad. I yes. feel kind of a lot of these child stars have this very deep sadness that affects their adult life and it's sad to watch, but 
speaking of people being held against their will, um, <laughs> let's talk about China and the Uyghurs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think the last and, time we talked about this was like 2019, like summer of 2019. And we only dedicated like maybe a half an episode to it because it was in the news also. Um, so it might be interesting to do a deep dive, I think. Well, the truth is in 2019, I didn't really know very much about Uyghurs at all. Um, right. I knew virtually nothing. I really didn't know too much about Islam in northern China. I didn't know too much about um, what a Uyghur was or who a Uyghur was. And I sure as hell did not know anything about some of these re um, education these camps. re-education camps or vocational camps, mm-hmm. vocational centers, if you want to label them that. Hard air um, quotes I didn't, on that one. Air, air quotes. I didn't know too much about it. Uh, but over the past two years, I have been doing some homework on it. And I think my biggest takeaway is that most people think of China as a ethnic homogenous nation state. They're under the impression that China is one stable unitary country. Um, but that would be inaccurate. Right. There are totally. 56 official nationalities of China. 55 for, of which are minorities, by the way, <laughs> according to them. Well, the Han Chinese. Uh, it's like Han and 55 others. <laughs> for most of its long history, China has been divided into warring regions with a strong unitary state being the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. A matter of fact, China's disunity made it very easy prey for European colonists in the 19th century. So it's really no wonder that China is obsessed with distributing the culture values of the CCP across the country. Their goal is to make this just super nation state that is able to um, control the monopoly of violence over, over, over a billion people with a country the size, virtually around the size of America in square mileage. I think it might be a little bit smaller. Um, I don't know. Actually, do you know the answer to that? What's bigger, America, China, mainland America? With Alaska, I, I don't. Definitely bigger. But I'll, uh, but I'll, I'll Google it. But regardless, um, it's no wonder that China has this obsession with, um, you know, enforcing and promulgating these uh, cultural values. I got an answer now, for you, by the way. What is that? China's got a land area of nine point three million square um, kilometers, or three point six square miles, which is 2.2% larger than the U.S., which has a land area of 9.1 square kilometers or 3.5 square miles. Uh, But that's only contiguous U.S. I think if we added in Alaska, there might be a closer tie, but it's damn close. Well, whatever it is, they're virtually the same size. Yep. And one of the major issues they have distributing their culture is that there are hundreds of millions of ethnic minorities distributed across the PRC. Right. Some with culture values that are diametrically opposed to Beijing. And about 1,500 miles into the Chinese mainland in northern China, you have an ethnic, northwest China, you have an ethnic group called the Uyghurs. So the Uyghurs are a Turkic, Altaic-speaking ethnic group. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them are Muslims. And they are the majority of the population of the Tarim Basin, a region that came under under Chinese rule after the Qing conquest of 1759. Today, that region falls under the control of the PRC. So they call it the Xinjiang. 
Uyghur Autonomous Region. And a lot of these uh, names and places are going to be really hard even for me to pronounce, to be honest. Um, also, the Uyghurs are recognized, technically speaking, by China as a regional minority within a multicultural nation. And they also reject the idea of them being an, an indigenous group. What makes the Uyghurs a problem for China is that they managed to develop a very unique nationalistic histography within the bounds of the centralized Chinese state. And because of their national identity, they live under the strictest security regime in all of China and arguably the world. Definitely. Really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important to understand the history of Islam in China. Um, kingdoms have risen and fallen in China's Xinjiang region for about 2,000 years. Uh, for example, in the early 20th century, uh, archaeologists found the remnants of Muslim communities built upon Tang Dynasty ruins, built upon Tibetan villages, built upon Han forts, built upon Indian Buddhist monasteries, and then all with Roman art even being found. So I guess that is really uh, just to solidify the fact that this was a, a highly um, uh, transient area of the world yeah. um, is what you would call a borderland or marchland. where a bunch of, of marchland. <laughs> so the Silk Road, um, it, it connected two of the world's most influential religions, Islam and Buddhism. And the two religions, they would clash with each other. So the Buddhists dominated the region up until the Tang Dynasty, and Islam became the dominant religion after the Mongol invasion. Now, it should come to really no surprise that the origin of the Uyghur people is a matter of contention between the PRC and Uyghur nationalists. Um, in short, modern Uyghurs view themselves as the original inhabitants of Xinjiang with a history that dates back a thousand years. Mm -hmm. For example, the World Uyghur Congress claims that they have a 4,000-year unbroken history in that region. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what is the truth? The truth is always be skeptical of stories about long, unbroken histories. Rarely is the, are they true. When someone tries to say, or when some racial group tries to say, hey, we have like an ethnic tie to this land based off of 4,000-year history— Say, really? Really? You can prove that you're the des descendants of a society 4,000 years ago? Unbroken. Unbroken. We can, so if you're saying if we had a DNA test and we went 4,000 years back, these people who live in this region would be the same, have the same DNA mm -hmm. as you? That's, that's, uh, that's quite the claim, as you would say. Right. Because people are, over the past... 4,000 years, there's been so many migration, past 10,000 years, but there's been so many migrations and conquests throughout human history that right. is just uh, an assimilation near as well. Near extinction events for, for humans, you know, like yeah. plagues and the Mongols and only God knows what. Yeah, it's, it's, the real it's kind of hard, hard to yeah, make that claim. And th this isn't like a dig on Uyghurs specifically. <laughs> it's like just generally speaking, these super long unbroken... Uh, histories are questionable yeah i know and it's i'm watching the for example i'm just watching the um the show the last kingdom which mm -hmm. I've, I've talked about a bunch right. on this and people have like contacted me saying thanks bro for recommending the last kingdom it's awesome 
it's all about just different ethnic groups and clashing with each other between Danes and Saxons and the Normans aren't in the show, but that comes obviously later who are just Danes that kind of assimilated in France and then conquer England. But I digress. Um, the reality is um, in the early 20th century in the Qing province in, in Xinjiang, the region that is today known as uh, Xinjiang's Uyghur Autonomous Region, no one considered themselves to be Uyghur. Right. And I got, a, I got a quote from... Uh, an American author and like scholar on on uh, on Eastern civilizations. Um, his name is uh, um, Owen Lattimore, and it's in his book uh, "Return to China's Northern Frontier." Uh, this was written back in '73, but I think it's still poignant. Uh, he wrote, uh, "As a matter of fact, there was for centuries no quote national name for them. People identified themselves with the oases they came from, like Kashgar or Turfan, and." You know what's what's important there is that you know prior to this 20th century you know, change, people were very nomadic and they had more like ties to a random oasis in the middle of the in the middle of the mountainous deserts of Xinjiang than they did to some like cohesive collective, you know, uh, ethnic group. So let me bring this back in the 1920s and the 1930s, the Turkic-speaking Muslim culture elites in that area. Um, they revived the name of the ancient Uyghur in order to give themselves a claim of legitimacy to that area. So the Uyghur Khaganate was an empire in the eighth and the ninth centuries. So they adopted that name to just give their to give them more legitimacy in that in that area. And I'm getting this one of the guys who I really read to do this podcast and who I've been reading to uh, learn about this region is a guy named Rion Thumb who is a uh, who has a bunch of books on this topic and he's also a Uyghur rights activist so I'm not trying to be an asshole again to be like oh yeah you're not even a real peoples but the truth <laughs> is that they are a um, invented people in the 20th century like how many ethnic groups are and in the early 1930s there was a lot of political and economic chaos in the region which opened up the idea of a Uyghur state. And this led to the creation of the East Turkestan Republic that only lasted a few years before it was it was actually conquered by a Soviet-backed Chinese warlord named Sheng Shikai. Sheng Shikai. Sheng Shikai. But Sheng Shikai. But under Sheng Shikai, um, he had let the Uyghurs kind of go about their business. There were Uyghurs who are participating in government, and there was also Uyghur intellectual sphere, so we didn't eliminate them. Don't get me wrong, Shang Shikai is a bastard in, throughout history. He did Soviet-style purges and killing, so don't think that he was just some tolerant guy. But he didn't persecute the Uyghurs um, as much as other governments did in the future. Mm -hmm. But because of that, in this transition, the Uyghur identity does live on. Um, in that part of the world. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this helps to like give you a better understanding of like the kind of fluid nature of the definition of what it means to be Uyghur and how crazy diverse that ancestry is. And, you know, it, it causes a lot of confusion right now, you know, um, so much confusion. I know you brought up earlier about, you know, just generally speaking, calling out 4,000 years of, of unbroken history. You know, there, there's a lot of controversy around DNA analysis, um, mainly that, 
it's not really happening as much as it probably should. And a lot of the reasons why is because the DNA analysis from a lot of people in that area in Central Asia, uh, especially the Uyghurs, are that they're made up of Caucasians and East Asians, right? Um, but the Uyghur activists, they're trying to kind of pull in a claim by saying they identify with these these mummies that they found in the Tarim, you know, uh, uh, oases area, and uh, that they are part of that like ancient culture. Um, but as people have gone into researching the genetics of these mummies and their links with the current Uyghurs, it got kind of problematic, both to the Uyghurs and the Chinese, which was interesting because, you know, what happens is the Chinese don't want the evidence to come out that in fact the Uyghurs are a four thousand year old, you know, minority group because that would be bad for them because then, you know, by international standards they would be afforded certain protections, right? Um, however, on the other hand, double-edged sword here, the Uyghurs kind of don't want the opposite to be true either, right? They don't want it to come out that they're not related to these, um, you know, 4,000-year-old mummies because then that kind of throws a wrench in their, you know, in their activism and in their claim to, you know, being a, a unified people. So it's it's a bit fucked up. So needless to say, it's it's not really happening. And the data that comes out is super sparse. I thought I thought that was actually a really interesting take when I was doing the research on particularly the origins of, of the Uyghurs. So neither of them want to take a further look into these mummies. Yeah. It, it's kind of, it's kind of like, if you, how, if how you, do they even analyze mummies? Uh, well, I mean the same way you would do, you, you can, uh, like an autopsy or not. An no, autopsy, you, you can, like, you can get DNA off of a mummy. Mummies are, are great because oh, yeah. they have DNA on them, right? Like they're not the fucking, you know, bones, even the bones, you can get some DNA off of too, but, um, is better than just like dust, <laughs> you know, which would be impossible to like do DNA mashing on. Um, but it, it's almost like you took the CCP and the Uyghurs and you brought them on an episode of Maury and both of them were like, I'm gonna let you finish Maury, <laughs> but just don't tell us. <laughs> we don't want to know. <laughs> like we, we don't want to know. <laughs> and on that point, that's probably the only thing that the Uyghurs and the CCP are probably agreeing on. Like they just don't, they don't want to know that's that's hilarious um that is that is a really funny analogy as well yeah um like mari you so, are no 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 mori <laughs> don't finish that sentence. you are the you are not the relatives of a four thousand year old race or you um, are we don't know because no one found out yet <laughs> so in 1949 um the prc is created and uh, all the territories of the Qing dynasty were to be absorbed into the communist into communist China, including Xinjiang. And they recognized the Uyghurs as an ethnic group rather than a political group. And you would think being recognized as a legitimate ethnic group would be a good thing, but it isn't because this was the beginning of uninterrupted China-based rule, something which really hadn't happened since the Qing conquest in the 1700s. And the transition leads to the settled Turkic speakers of Xinjiang going from loosely defined majority group under indirect rule to a formalized ethnic minority under direct rule. Mm -hmm. So the rule of the administration of a Chinese-dominated police state. And as the Chinese Communist Party tried to implement 
its vision for a new China within the old Qing borders, it would need to co-op the social movements of the previous decades. And by the late 1950s, the, the, the Uyghurs were subjugated to the same radical and, and painful transformations as the rest of China. Mm-hmm. Mao really left nothing in his path but just complete misery. And at the same time, the CCP started confronting historically deeper institutions that had it had never really touched before, like land-owning mosques and, and, and uh, Islamic courts. So they didn't have a history in dealing with with religion or at least Islam like that and the social ties that were um, connected to Islam as well. And as things get worse and worse, um, at the same time, relations between China and the Soviet Union are getting worse. Mm -hmm. So the Soviet Union started playing off resentment in these communities and they they fostered uh, Uyghur separatist movements leading to the creation of the East Turkestan People's Party, which was which was an armed militia group, right? Um, and in, in response, the CPP cracked down even more. What's ironic about the Soviet Union aiding the um, the, the ETPP is that future Uyghur separate, separatist movements would turn on them. So Muslim Uyghurs went to Afghanistan to fight in the 1980s. Right. Um, every during the 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 jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, Muslims from everywhere, Muslims across, there, yeah. Muslims mm-hmm. from the world. It was like the Spanish Civil War. Right. Um, the groups that were inspired by the Mujahideen were the ones that went back and created the the Turkestan Islamic Party, which was a more violent version of the ETIM with a Wahhabi Salafist theme. Hmm. So there, for there are thousands of these guys fighting in Syria right now right. who are fighting Assad. Right. A lot of them are linked with Al Qaeda. Um, and if you interview them, it's kind of funny because I've listened to, I've read like a bunch of interviews from these Uyghur fighting fighters, um, either in ETIM. A lot of them are are in Idlib province. A lot of them fight with Al Qaeda. Um, they they're like, we're here for the training. Because we want to go back and uh, create a a uh, Al Qaeda in Xinjiang. <laughs> well, they don't even really say they want to start a Salafist state in Western China. They just said, you know, we're training for a separatist movement, mm. which which makes sense. Yeah. Well, which may- yeah. So, to some degree, it's it's there is some speculation. Though I don't know and I can't prove it, um, but some people speculate there's cooperation between U.S. intelligence and Uyghur separatist movements. Um, I can, there was a I CIA. Can totally believe that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I kind of believe it as well. However, I'm letting other people decide believe what they want. <laughs> the U.S. has a history of backing is uh, Islamist movements, mm-hmm. and this was even this was prior to even 9/11, to where there was no like even. A subtle taint of doing that, mm. um, and there was a CIA agent who actually said that 
Um, the policy of guiding the evolution of Islam and of helping them against their adversaries worked marvelously, marvelously well in Afghanistan against the Russians. The same doctrines can still be used to destabilize what remains of Russian power and especially to counter the Chinese influence in Central, in Central Asia. That was by Graham Fuhler said that in 1999. It's a disgusting um, idea. In, in a statement about um, the CIA's Islamic strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this group is more violent and they're responsible for a string of, terror- <clears throat> a string of terrorist attacks throughout the 2000s. Um, so the first big one that we talk about on August 4th, 2008, the ETIM, so the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement now. They murdered 16 police officers in the city of Kashgar. Um, and then this was around the time of the Beijing Olympics. Um, so the day before the Beijing Olympics, there was an attempted suicide bombing on China Southern Airline. Mm-hmm. Because this was, I'm honestly was oblivious to this stuff, obviously, in 2008. Right. So I can't I, I be like, hey. Yeah, I can't go back and be like, hey, do you remember during the suicide? I had to you know, find this out a decade later. Um, but apparently this was a big there was a there was a security concern during the Olympics. And um, a lot of um, commissions and athletes were like, hey, you better have your shit together before, you know, we bring athletes here. Yeah. Nothing better happen. Um, so. Fortunately, it was it, that suicide bombing was uh, prevented. It, it was it was prevented. Um, but a year later, the summer of two thousand nine, there's a really really big riot um, in in the capital city of Arumqi, Kai Arumqi. I'm not sure if I'm the Arumqi. Arumqi, I think is what it's called. This is the capital. Yeah. Um, of the province of Xinjiang, mm-hmm. and. It is so. Basically, what happened is that this giant riot breaks out, and and within the surrounding villages as well. And it wasn't even a rebellion against the authority of the CPP. It was just a good old fashioned, full fledged race riot, because it was it was sparked by by um, I don't know the full story, but some Uyghurs were blamed for raping a woman. Um, and they were murdered without having a trial. Didn't we have months of, of you know, um, protesting and, and rioting um, as a result of something that happened to George Floyd, you know? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. But I don't actually even know the full story of what happened. The point is, though, during this riot, there were extremist elements that were able to subvert the movement and they killed a bunch of Han Chinese. They killed 200. They murdered 200 people during these riots. Nuts. nuts. Um, then the following month, the ETIM, there was a uh, car killing. So there was um, they killed five people in Tiananmen Square with a, by running them over. Um, and then the following year in February, there was this really terrible organized knife attack at a train station. They killed 30 people. Um, kind of hard to believe that there was, you can kill 30 people in one go with a knife attack. Well, it's an organized knife. There's a bunch of people with knives still, and they're stabbing random still, people. Still, that's fucking terrifying. It is terrifying. It's one thing um, to blow up a bomb. Later, it's another thing to like have a couple of dudes with knives just going around stabbing people. That's nuts. 
Well, when you think about it, it's probably, if it's organized and if you have dozens of people with knives and their, um, you know, their intention is just to get up close and personal and they have no problem, you know, slicing and gutting people up, then you think that it, it probably would be more uh, effective than just a bomb that goes off and, you know, depends on people who are who's near the bomb and the, the blast radius and things that may be out of their control. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what makes it so, the, so heinous, though, right? It's, it's like much yeah. easier to like place a bomb and pull the trigger elsewhere, you know, um, or even just set it on a timer and go away, you know, and not really have a second thought about, you know, the human beings that lose their lives about it. But it's another thing entirely to get up close and personal and just straight up take someone's life with a knife. It's, it's kind of it's kind of a sick thing to think but i always like whenever i'm walking around new york city i always have it have it in my head i'm like hey it would just be so easy to to commit mass violence yeah in a subway in a crowded subway in an organized like you'd be able to get away with it there's no way you'd be detected it only takes like a bunch of people with knives to really do damage well, don't give um, anyone any ideas, but I, I I'm see not trying to give anyone ideas. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> no, I mean, it, the, it's reality, a, it's the reality, reality is right. that if someone, In, if a group wants to be violent mm-hmm. and if they're committed to violence, they're going to then it. they can they they're able to do it, right? You know, and this this is probably true of knives, every major, guns, bombs. Yeah, this this is true of every major city. Car, yeah. whether yeah. it's a hammer, so like it could be anything. Yeah, uh, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it is kind of scary to think about that. Um, but there are there are more terrorist attacks throughout in China over the next years. Um, there's another really big attack in May of 2014 in Arumqi. Um and then there's a really big one in September of 2014 that kills about 50 people. And then that following month, there's another coordinated knife attack at a coal mine that killed 50 people. See more, yeah. So there's a very, there's a violent fringe separatist movement. Now, I'm not saying we're not saying that Uyghurs are all Islamic extremists. I'm just saying there is a element. It, mm-hmm. There's a there is a. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Fringe separatist group that was committing these types of violent acts. Now, independence from China, it may not necessarily sound good to every single Uyghur. Now, um, I pulled up this article from called the article.com, but it's by a guy named... That's the most Mark nondescript O'Neil. website name. Thearticle.com. Yeah. That's, that's where I got uh, it. I pulled up this article from thearticle.com, but it was a really good article about the economic situation. So Xinjiang is critical to the economic future of China. It covers 1.6 million square kilometers, one-sixth of the national territory. It holds the country's largest natural gas reserves, almost half of its coal and a fifth of its oil. It has more than 130 kinds of mineral deposits with those of mica and beryllium. In 2019, it produced 5 million tons of cotton, 84.9% of the national total. TLDR, they have a fuck ton of natural resources, like a lot, and the Chinese government has invested a whole lot of money in building up infrastructure around those natural resources, including creating um, uh, uh, production facilities uh, and and the different um, uh, extraction methods that are needed for those uh, particular raw materials. And as a result, they've built up a bunch of cities around these uh, uh, industries. Uh, I think the the key point there was that there was nine. Uh, they built ten cities and they control nine of them. And by they, I mean Han Chinese uh, that make up about ninety percent of those of those cities and in those areas. So lots and lots and lots of stuff there. Lots and lots of stuff. So that's that's obviously like the 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 scratching the surface, like war for oil kind of. You know, the first thing you think of is like, well, that's why they're mean to the the Uyghurs because they want all the natural resources, and and that's kind of true. Uh, there's is more to it, but um, I think th- th- that's at least one part of it. Um, but I think another part of this is something that Henry is very very passionate about. And that is a land bridge. Uh, you might have uh, picked up on um, from the quote that Henry just read, uh, you know, the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is China's basically Silk Road 2.0, where they're trying to build uh, a land road uh, from China through Central Asia and onwards towards Europe and and other places as well, uh, because it's it's frankly cheaper. Uh, and and more effective than shipping stuff all the way around all of the continents, and also having to deal with the volatility around you know key shipping lanes like the Straits of Hormuz as an example, uh, or the Red Sea, right? So 
Uh, I got a quote for you. Mine is a bit shorter though. Um, this one comes from Rebecca Warren from In Real Clear Defense. And, and she wrote on, on this particular topic of the land bridge, but fortunately for China, Xinjiang has two qualities that make it an ideal candidate for developmental um, investment. Uh, it's rich in oil, gas, and coal, and it's geographically adjacent to Central Asia. I'll pause there for a second. That's the important part. The fact that it's bordering, it's in the northwest of China, and it's bordering, I think, eight separate countries in Central Asia, uh, including some major players like Russia, um, um, India, uh, uh, Kazakhstan is, has its largest border. Um, so all these people are like very close there, and it happens to be a you know land port, if you will. Continuing on, that's that same geographical position uh, that gives China concern that it might seek independence uh, also makes it the perfect hub for Chinese exports via this Belt and Road Initiative. So not only will a more prosperous Xinjiang be less likely to seek independence and foment insurgency, but the but using the initiative to increase the wealth of Central Asian countries and make them beholden to China for this largesse creates a non-democratic buffer zone between China and the West. It's no surprise that the Belt and Road uh, Initiative was announced in uh, Astana, uh, given that uh, Xinjiang's longest border is with Kazakhstan. I'm going to pause right there. This this article is is pretty uh, neoconservative or even neoliberal uh, for that matter, and I think they're trying to she's trying to make the case that like you know, China understands uh, that a better economic situation in Xinjiang is is going to create more stability in that region and also serve as a way to you know. Uh, um, uh, it, literally, she says it like make a buffer zone between the West uh, and you know the East. But um, where I kind of disagree in that respect is that is the idea that that uh, the CCP could effectively increase uh, you know the, the um, in, increase the wealth of that of that area. Uh, or at least maybe they can increase the wealth of that area, but it's not going to be distributed equitably. Uh, and, and so I think that's where she gets it wrong. I think she's trying to say that, um, uh, th- that, that all this extra wealth that would come through this land bridge uh, is going to make them more you know, capitulative to the CCP. But in fact, you know, it's not going around you know, evenly. It's not helping the local people. And so therefore, rather than... Um, putting down insurgency, it's actually probably going to increase insurgency. Um, And the last part of this bit uh, that she writes is that uh, one of its headline ventures is the creation of six new economic land corridors, including the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, linking Xinjiang to the port of Gwadar in Pakistan. And this direct trade route is expected to bring economic and national security dividends to Xinjiang by making it the province into a trading hub. Again, this is... Uh, taking the assumption that by creating these uh, highly, and I, I won't disagree, it's probably going to be very, um, very lucrative uh, economically, but but where that money goes and how how that affects the people that live in that region is, in my opinion, up for debate. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's going to be spread equitably to you know the uh, the the ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs in that region. Uh, I think it's going to be primarily a Han Chinese thing, and we've seen a lot of, you know, population growth of Han Chinese in the area. the The percentage of Han Chinese um, has increased over the last several years, and there's been a lot of migration there. So I don't know. 
I, I think this is a you know th- this is an important thing to think about when we think about the geopolitics of of what's going on with the Uyghurs, and we'll talk about you know the camps and things like that in a second here. But I mean, what do you think, Henry? Do you think that uh, you know this land bridge is going to be a pos- a net positive or a net negative for the Uyghur population or for China in general? Well, both. There is going to be some level of wealth that inevitably is going to be distributed to the people who live there. Um, the problem is that it, there seems to be massive amounts of ethnic nepotism that goes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's enough evidence to conclude that, even though I have been trying to read some different articles that <laughs> yeah. um, and different sources that, that try to debunk the, the main narrative. Um, specifically, I was actually on the World Socialist Forum. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I was like, I wonder what the socialist people think about this. And <laughs> I, I understand the sentiment of saying that, hey, listen, a lot of this stuff sounds like cooked up propaganda. And after the Iraq war and after weapons of mass destruction, like how right. can you believe anything? Right. Um, and here's what I would say is that I agree. Like, it's almost impossible to believe anything that comes out of Mike Pompeo's mouth. <laughs> totally. And, yeah. Totally. It's almost impossible to believe anything that comes out of, you know, NBC or or The Atlantic or a lot of these mainstream or corporate press outlets. Yeah, I mean, I, I read that article. It's also impossible to believe. But here, here's the thing. It's also yeah. impossible to believe anything that comes out of China's mouth. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah, so we got two liars that we have to deal with, right? And, and, and then the question is, is like you have to look really look into it and look at firsthand sources right because there's some sources that i was reading about people who are either either touring the area or just um casually visiting it they're like oh we didn't really sense any type of like tension at all mm-hmm. there's some ones there's some people who are like there's a lot of tension mm-hmm. um there's some people who are like there's there's just active violence all over the place yeah so it really depends. You know, I don't obviously have the full picture of you know what it is really like there in northwest China between the Muslims and basically between the Hans and the Han Chinese and the, and the um, various minorities there, specifically the Muslim minorities. I, I obviously I, I obviously don't have a full picture, but there seems to be um, a massive amount of um, ethnic nepotism. And that is um, not only enforced by or or not even not only promulgated by just like, you know, um, hey, like I'm only going to hire Han Chinese. uh, But there's a active um, there's an active agenda from the state to assimilate Muslims into the CCP state vision. And have them assimilate into that culture. And I think that's a nice uh, way of putting it. <laughs> it seems that it seems that there's obstacles for them to do that because, you know, a uh, because of the difference in religion. Um, usually, Muslims are opposed to kind of atheist values that are forced down their throat. So there's kind of a a uh, a disaster waiting to happen or a conflict waiting to happen. Yeah, um, totally. So th- those are my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. I, I think you sent a bunch of articles that were like contrary to this, you know, to the narrative um, that we're going to talk a little bit about 
right here about the camps and and the uh, you know situations of the Uyghurs, but you know vocational um, schools, not camps. Vocational whatever. schools. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I mean, they're just learning how to to um, to fix you know change oils and. <laughs> change oils um no i mean honestly that that one uh the socialist one that you were talking about i read that one too and and while i think it it triggered me in a way because i was like i had already read a lot of accounts from a lot of different sources that outlined some things that made me very upset uh, about what was happening to the uyghurs so it's hard to read from a different perspective once you've already been you know uh given the opposite side uh, where I think it helped me was that they made a lot of claims about there not being any proof of the camps or that they're trying to disprove an eyewitness's narrative. And I think I think that was worth looking at. And that's it actually helped me to do better research and find, you know, those firsthand accounts and find those satellite imagery, things like that. Um, but what rubbed me the wrong way about a lot of those contrary narratives was you know, it, it was a whole lot of like Holocaust denying the Uyghur situation, you know, basically trying to say that the U.S. and its and its and its agencies are trying to WND scare us into like a Cold War with China, which like is a in 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 a in a rudimentary way is a fair point. But, you know, when you examine how much evidence is coming out of this, you know, uh, to the contrary or how much evidence is coming out that that some sh- something fishy is going on. It's it's really hard to to hold that position very fervently, you know. Um, well, what what bothers me specifically about a lot of the narrative that's painted is that a lot of the people who are painting the who are uh, coming out with like, oh my God, China is treating the Muslims so bad, they're treating them so terribly, mm-hmm. are like the same people who advocated for the Iraq War. And yeah, like and the, bombing, that's also like really hard. Bomb, yeah. Slaughtering Muslims in the Middle East. Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, all right. So it's a bunch of hypocrites people, saying this don't shit. Give me, too, don't yeah. give me the crocodile tear, tears right. that you all of a sudden right. care so much about Muslims. Right. Like a lot of these people are like, a lot of these people who are like, oh, look at the Uyghurs. Look at the Uyghurs. We need to save the Uyghurs. Right, like look at China Pompeo. being so oppressive <laughs> towards an Islam. Yeah. Are people who are like, I don't want a single Muslim in the United States. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, like Mike Pompeo, I think it, he's a really kind, good example it, of that. Yeah. It's it's dif- it's difficult for me to um, look at that narrative or take that narrative mm-hmm. without a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. At the same time, China is an authoritarian shithole <laughs> that is t- that has a terrible government and you don't need to make things up to um to make to, them look bad <laughs> you don't yeah you don't really need to make things up and i don't necessarily think that the u.s that like that the pretext of uyghurs uh suffering in in these re-education camps slash concentration camps slash vocational camps is not really needed for the u.s to have a hawkish policy on it Right on China. It's um, like a, it's like the, icing on the, the cake or a cherry the, on top. If anything, there's the plenty trade of other policies alone. Yeah. The trade policies alone um, are going to lead to that. I mean, you can still um, kind of uh, saber rattle over trade deficits and right. currency manipulation mm-hmm. or IP uh, theft mm-hmm. or um, the coronavirus. Like, you can <laughs> even pick. You can even pick other ethnic groups or uh, other groups like uh, like. Taiwan mm-hmm. um, or Tibet, if, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to take a persecuted or, yeah. or Hong Kong. 
So it, it, it doesn't, my perspective is that I think China is doing this. I think they are making these camps and they're forcibly using, coercing people into these camps using, um, these vocational camps that are, that are, have like barbed wire fences, right? Yeah. Let's get into that. I'm reading that right. I'm reading that correctly. Right. When I'm reading these articles are, they're actual barbed wire fences. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk talk about that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that because I think that the specifics really matter here. Um, so here's some specific stats, right? I don't think we brought this up in the beginning. There's 11 million Uyghurs in China and maybe about one to 2 million that are outside of China. So their diaspora is about maybe, you know, 12 to 14 million, right? Um, there's a significant um, communities of Uyghurs that exist outside of China in that immediate Central Asian region, places like uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, etc. But also small communities in, in Canada, Germany, Belgium, the United States, places like that. Um, so they're kind of everywhere. Uh, but the reason why I bring up the number of Uyghurs that there are is because the the number of Uyghurs that are alleged to have been put into these camps, no matter what kind of camp you want to call them, it is just a staggering number. So by, by some accounts, up to 10% or like a million and a half Uyghurs interned into these places. And that by itself is a giant number. That's a big, like imagine if 10, like 1% of the United excuse me, 10% of the United States, 33 million people were just, you know, like just locked up in an internment camp against their will. Oh, wait, for-profit prisons. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to. Um, okay, here, here's some here's some, here's some some stuff. So I, I kept asking myself, is there proof of this, right? You know, I was looking at the, the counter narratives, and I'm thinking, and they're all saying there's no proof. So I'm like, let me, let me try and find proof. Like, is this real? So this guy, Timothy Gross, he's one of the China scholars that are involved in the efforts. Um, he um, reported in The Atlantic. Um, uh, and Oh, there's a red flag. Well, The Atlantic there's images like there's pictures there's the exact like screenshots and there's there's even a link to his like data dumps in there too so you know the, don't shoot the, Atlantic, the messenger the Atlantic well, think think about the Atlantic when I always just kind of like it's one of those agents those those publications just like lost 100% credibility with most people and should have zero credibility over the types of stuff that they were writing, the type of shit they were writing before the Iraq war about weapons of Matt, about uh, Saddam Hussein's links to Al Qaeda and stuff like that. Well, you gotta, you gotta so, understand that this story fits their narrative, but it doesn't make the story wrong. Right. So this story would fit their narrative that China bad and we should do something about bad China. Right. But it doesn't make the story wrong. And if you look at the evidence that, that this guy, you know, who's not, he's not a, a, a reporter for the Atlantic. His name is Timothy Gross, and he's, he's, he's actually a scholar on this per- particular thing. And he said it was actually extremely easy to find the evidence, literally with nothing more than, you know, some basic Chinese knowledge. Yeah, you have to be able to speak Chinese. Um, the Internet, specifically uh, Baidu, which is the Chinese equivalent of Google, and like Google Earth. And that's it. That's all he really needed to find what he needed to find. So the first step that he ran was he ran a search for re-education center using that Baidu platform. And the CCP was stupid enough to actually have articles up on the internet on their government websites about re-education 
centers, right, in Xinjiang. Uh, so he found a bunch of news reports, uh, and, and there, there are a few screenshots in that uh, particular article that uh, describe how uh, officials um, under this policy, and I'm going to butcher this, so let me try this one real fast. It's called Ku, uh, fuck it. it. It translates to de-extremification work, um, where, uh, where uh, re-educating Muslim um, ethnic minorities, notably the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs in the northwestern Xinjiang province. So he literally finds an article on Chinese government website that says there's some de-extremification work under, uh, being undergone in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs. Oh, so de-extreme, I get that. Right. And, and the thing is that they're, they're happy about this, right? And we'll, we'll talk about this in, in a moment, how you know, China didn't invent this idea, right? They stole this idea from us. The NYPD? <laughs> yeah, they stole it from the NYPD, right? Where we, de- we came up with this idea, you know? But I'll get into that later. So they, they just had it on the website, right? And as long as you can read Chinese, you can read it. Um, and so the second step that he used was, okay, he found the policy's name, which I can't pronounce it. Right. And he searched that policy's name in Baidu, right, which goes to another government website. And uh, the third step was to see what those websites said about these centers and, quote, activities and locations. And he said that he found this is actually a picture in the in the in the article, too. I don't read Chinese, so I'm going to take him on his word that what the you know, what the text says, says what he says it means. But. There's a picture that he found on this government website where some officials are cutting, like they're doing like a ribbon cutting ceremony at a recently built facility in Xinjiang for this re-education. And in the in the text on the banner behind them, uh, it, it reads, they have officials standing, oh, excuse me, hold on. Uh, the, the, the gate, they're standing in front of this gate and the gate sign clearly in Chinese and in Uyghur says, quote, re-education center, right? So they exist, right? There, there, there are such places as re-education center. The Chinese government admits to it. It's, you can find it on the internet. There are pictures. You can even use Google Maps and find specifically where they are, and you can look down on them. And there's plenty of them. There's so many of them that this guy found. And another point is that um, another place to look for whether or not these camps exist was to look at these construction bids and tender notices that the that the Chinese government uh, officials were posting online because they were looking for companies to come and build those camps for them, right? So they put uh, a bunch of construction bids online for construction companies to bid on to build these camps. So they left themselves a paper trail saying, yes, we're building all of these camps. We need somebody to come and get it. And a lot of those bids, and, and you pointed this out a, a moment ago, the specifics, like the specs for these compounds included super high walls, watchtowers, barbed wires, surveillance systems, facilities for armed police forces, and other security features. So here's another thing that you just find on the internet. The Chinese government put on their government websites you know, a, a request for proposal, an RFP, for bids on facilities for re-education that include fucking barbed wire in them. What kind of re-education center needs barbed wire? Here's another way to look at it. Straight through the internet. 
What if it's to prevent people from coming into the re-education center I think and they not think, out of it? I, honest, I honestly think because of their proximity to Mongolia, they think that like there will be a new Khan revolution or something like that. Because that's the only reason why you would need 12-foot-high walls with barbed wire on it in that, in that area. It's the only reason, apparently. Um, here's another one. And this one was like, uh, I didn't find as much information on this one, but apparently there was some like... Uh, uh, like on the government's career pages <laughs> for these uh, re-education um, centers, let's call them, uh, the the notices for like some of these, quote, camp administrator positions had really, or, or and I'm quoting here, suspiciously low educational requirements, such as middle school education. So if these camps are actually vocational schools, like the government says they are, why the fuck are they recruiting people with a minimum middle school education? You would think that they would be recruiting people with like maybe a college education, high school at, at least, right? Well, I think the justification is that they're edu- re-educating people who potentially would become extremists. And extremists are – extremism is most likely to foster within um, – the poor class so they're uh-huh. specifically targeting um, people in poverty um, with little education because they know that they would be uh, more likely to become um, extremist in the future yeah but that's so that's, that's not why what they're sa- that's not what I, that's what, not what I not, said. My, all right, what I, yeah you're not what you're I, not following that I think it's not that they're looking for to put poor people in these re-education camps it's that the people that they're hiring to re-educate them oh okay are I'm fucking sorry. I middle school you. education people and i'm not trying to be like you know i'm sorry if you listen to this show and you only have a middle school education like you know I, I i mean no disrespect to you but my point that i'm trying to get at here is if you're trying to run a school you're probably going to look for people who have more education probably right so if the barbed wire didn't get you and you know the you know the the signs uh, of of buildings in front of buildings on ribbon cutting ceremonies where it says re-education center, and you know if the the fucking the 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 job uh, uh, the job descriptions didn't get it, then another way that you can do is you can, he plugged in all of the information that he found uh, before into Google Earth, and he's literally finding satellite images of these exact complexes. And you can see the fucking walls and the barbed wire, and it looks like a prison. Like there's no other way to describe it. I don't know. Maybe I'm a I'm a noob at you know interpreting top down satellite imagery, but geographical spacing, huh? I mean, like geos. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm no good at it. But my noob perspective looks at it and like, yeah, checks out. Looks like a fucking prison. That's what it looks like. And. And this is all to say that, you know, this is a completely different news source here. Uh, uh, Last year, Al Jazeera pointed, um, they dropped a a pretty big uh, article on these leaked documents that came directly from the Chinese government that basically also corroborate this, right? So, you know, we've got the the one way of looking at it where we try and find stuff on the internet, right? Because the Chinese are pretty good at, at silencing and censoring, but they're not, you know, they missed a few steps. Let's just put it that way. So we, we see evidence there. And then we see evidence 
uh, in the form of leaked documents, and you can take them as you will. You know, some people don't trust leaked documents because of the nature of how they were obtained. Um, but these leaked documents uh, that uh, Al Jazeera wrote a uh, an article on are pretty pretty damning. Um, so it outlines that one million Uyghurs were detained in these vocational centers. Ten, that's ten percent of their population. Um, it said that. Uh, they were trying to, quote, stamp out hardline groups and give people, quote, new skills. Uh, that they, they were using computers and AI uh, to get predictive terrorist lists. I'm going to say that again. They're using AI, artificial intelligence, to try and figure out who is a terrorist. That's a minority report type shit to basically say you are guilty before you've committed a crime. Um, and then uh, among the list of the names that appear on there, uh, you know, a, the majority of them are Uyghurs and some of them are students and even some of them are party officials. So they're targeting people who were, that they said were quote, high risk there. This one also uh, kind of backed up some of the claims about, you know, the, the facilities. So, you know, watchtowers, double locked doors, video surveillance everywhere um, in these in these buildings. It also brought up the scoring systems. You know, China China's great with their with their social credit systems, but they built specific ones around these re-education camps that basically grades detainees on how well they speak Mandarin Chinese, um, how how well they memorize ideology, um, how well they adhere to strict rules like when they can bathe, when they can use the bathroom, and so on and so forth. Uh, one document actually said that. Um, that the purpose of the surveillance was to prevent problems before they happen. And these are all leaked documents from the CCP, like outlining and justifying what it is that they're doing. It doesn't sound like a re-education center, more like it sounds like a fucking brainwashing camp. It's funny because um, I think I also read somewhere, I don't know if you can confirm this or if you read the same thing, that um, they need to have like a Mao painting in their house or they need to have like, I think to that's, celebrate <laughs> Mao. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's, that, is, you, that is par for the course. You know, that's probably, <laughs> you know, that's the easiest of all of the things that they needed. So The Intercept just came out with – The Intercept is releasing a bunch of pieces on um, the Chinese surveillance system. Right. Um, so I guess they got their hands on a data, a police database, um, that is just talking about like the day-to-day activity of like, of, uh, of monitoring, monitoring, um, people who they suspect to be potential terrorists in the future. Mm-hmm. And I have the article up right now. It's called revealed massive Chinese police database and, it says it's all bulleted up, so it's actually kind of an easy to read thing, even though it's massive, because there's a lot of shenanigans going on there, obviously. Um, so the Arunki police database reveals how Chinese authorities collect millions of text messages, phone contacts, and call records, as well as e-commerce and banking records from Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. Invasive surveillance techniques watch for signs of religious enthusiasm, which are generally equated with extremism. Evidence that biometric data collected under the the Physicals for All Health program feeds into the police surveillance system. Police use community informants to collect massive amounts of information on Uyghurs in Arunki. 
Applying for asylum abroad can result in being classified as a terrorist as part of an initiative to prevent the black the backflow of foreign ideas, um, which is interesting because there is a lot of movement when you think about the diaspora mm-hmm. that the Uyghurs have outside of the country. They're in Russia. They're also in America. They're all over the world. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. So just um, applying for a... Um, asylum, yeah. Asylum is that you're going to be suspected as a terrorist. But hey, there were about 5,000... I'm not justifying this. I'm just kind of... I'm trying Contextualizing. to Contextualizing, yeah. I'm trying to think how like a... Um, member of the ccp right now like so it makes sense i'm trying Mm -hmm. to think like a ccp member hey there's five thousand or so that at least that's what china says there's five thousand uyghurs fighting in syria or at least there was five thousand uyghurs fighting in syria and bashir al-assad's government they also said that too so there's you know they both could be conflating that number but their concern is that a lot of these people are going out there to train in Idlib. There is a presence. There's uh, there's definitely Uyghur fighters in Idlib, and they're definitely training down there. Um, it's it's they're they've been involved in key battles. So hey, like hey, look how Turkey treats the Kurds. You know, is it really that different? Like, is it are the Chinese treating the Uyghurs worse than how Turkey treats the Kurds? Mm, I think so. Uh, you and think there's, so? Yeah, there's there's more stuff. There's more damning shit on there, but it, it's hard, it's a hard comparison to make. But I think so. It is a hard comparison. Um, I guess. Well, Turkey has the same type of policies where they don't necessarily go after every single Kurd. They go after like Kurd like people who they think would be Kurdish nationalist like there's a lot of kurdish businessmen who are like pro erdogan mm-hmm. and there's there's a kurdish class that is you know you know they're like yeah we we want to belong to turkey we don't want to have any 
part of like some nationalist movement. Kurdistan or anything like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like there's kind of a blanket um, discrimination thrown on Muslims in China as they're all extremist terrorist. They they already have like ten points taken off their social credit score. Yeah, just by Muslim. virtue of having yeah of having yeah. that faith. Um, yeah, I mean that's tough. I mean, and and as a as a result, you know, on that. Gra- point, well, granted, let me say one thing: China treats its Han population like this. I mean, they don't well, treat it like this, but just think about as bad as how China treats the Hans, like the the majority population, like the surveillance that they go under. Like what 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 do you expect a minority group? How a minority group would be treated? Well, with... I I'd agree, I'd agree with that because China has that social credit score. But where do you think they can't they test they beta tested the idea with the Uyghurs with these with these minority groups? They roll this out into these provinces first, figure out how it works, and then they roll it out to the masses. And as a result, we see a lot of technology that gets put into how do we suppress people. Uh, one of them. Uh, was put out that you know they they force people to download a you know uh, an app onto their phone that's uh, basically spyware. They call it an anti-terrorism sword, and they use it so frequently that you know the, the CCP themselves were worried that it was going to alienate the population there. Um, but basically, they did this on purpose because they wanted to see and track how well their policies and their re-education were working to drive down mosque attendance. Yes. You know, so they justify this app and this tracking thing because they want to say, all right, well, how well did we fuck up Islam in this area? You know, Uh, there's also some biometric data collection. So they'll make people stand in front of like these cameras and stuff like that so they can get really good scans of you so that they can use those scans in, you know, their mass surveillance state technology to, you know, use like facial recognition to see who you are, where you are, what you're doing, you know, and automatically take points away from you just for, you know, having a beard or something stupid. Um, also, <clears throat> I think, you know, there, it's part of the course to say that they're monitoring text messages, phone calls, you know, uh, they're looking at banking records, all that stuff. And, and that's, you know, kind of, I mean, the U.S. did that shit to us, too. So, <laughs> you know, like all things considered, but like it's par for the course, but they're using this technology to help further this. And and I think it's it gets pretty heinous when you start thinking about the actual program that people were going through in these camps. Right. And, you know, this is also uh, pulling from you know, uh, the leaked documents uh, that um, Al Jazeera put out about a year ago. Uh, but one of the parts of the curriculation is this ideological education. And so uh, they, they believe that there's this transformation through education um, in the Chinese belief. So um, it's, it's kind of Maoist in a way. It, it's reminiscent of that like thought reform campaign of, of the cultural revolution, in my opinion. Um, and I think you know, this indoctrination is, is it's, it's a lot of manner education, right? So it's like, you know, how it's trying to dictate how often you get a haircut and how often you change your clothes or how often you bathe. Right. It's all the seemingly very mundane shit that, ha- that in my opinion, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not like a culture studies person on for China, but like, are those things relevant? <laughs> you know, are those things super relevant specifically to Chinese belief systems? Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's just oppressive in general. And, 
you know, the, the extreme detail to which, you know, they regiment these, these, uh, um, prisoners lives is, is nuts. You know, um, one of the, um, one of the detainees, uh, what is her name? Gul Bakar Jailova, uh, had mentioned that, you know, they had to ask for permission to go to the bathroom, which, you know, I guess doesn't seem that crazy, but in the context of like, these are adult human beings, you know, it's like, you have to ask to go to the bathroom for real. Um, only 10 minutes were allotted every hour um, for any type of breaks like those. Um, and, you know, they're tested on, I mentioned this before, on, on their Chinese ability. Like, can they speak Mandarin well, their, ide- uh, their ideology? Um, and people who did well were awarded with family visits and early, quote, graduation. And people who didn't were sent to more strict management areas and longer detention times. Um, and the craziest part about this all is, according to these reports, students who went for, quote, vocational skills improvements only ended up doing the vocational training a year after learning ideology, law, and Mandarin. So, so like, you're saying they didn't learn how to do, like, their actual trade until they went through, like, their first, like freshman course of yep like okay now we're gonna learn mandarin now we're gonna learn about the great mao zidong right now that kind of shit right and and these people are being held against their will and that's the kind of important part you know like they're not they're not allowed to leave yeah you only get to leave if you do well right and you only get to actually learn something useful other than like fucking when to fucking take a shit yeah uh like it takes for many people a year it gets darker than this though this this uh, came out on the BBC like yesterday. I'm glad I found this before this episode. Uh, this article admittedly um, upset me deeply because if 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 even half of these firsthand accounts are true, uh, it is fucked up. Um, the article for those who want to read it on their own from the BBC is titled "Their Goal Is to Destroy Everyone." Uyghur camp detainees allege systematic rape. This is by Matthew Hill, David Campali, and Joel Gunther of BBC News. And they interview a number of people. And this was kind of like this third leg of of me trying to see if there's actual evidence behind what's going on. And a lot of the counter narratives was trying to disprove a lot of these people. And when I was reading this, I, I just felt like, I don't know like heartbroken for these, some of these, some of these stories that I was hearing so much so that it was hard for me to, you know, to even entertain the idea that they were lying. Um, but I mean, maybe they could be, but I just doubt it. (laughs) It just, everything about this seems like it's lining up from several different places. Anyhow, um, these women that are in these re-education camps evidently have been systemically raped and sexually abused and, and in some cases even tortured, um, according to the, the article there. And there's this one woman who they interviewed. Her name was uh, Tursine Ziawudin, um, who was able to flee Xinjiang um, and is now uh, in the U.S., um, said that basically the women were removed every single night and raped by one or more men, that she was tortured, gang-raped on three separate occasions, uh, each time by two or three men. Uh, and obviously, you know, it's, it's kind of impossible to, to verify her claims. 
Um, but what she was able to do is provide travel documents um, and immigration records uh, and uh, um, and basically described the camp that she was in in, Xin, in Xinjiang um, County. Uh, and that did a pretty good job of corroborating the timeline of her story. So, you know, I mean, especially her, her description of the camps themselves, right? It matched the satellite images that were analyzed. Uh, and, and, and so while, while it's literally impossible to, you know, uh, uh, say if she was lying or not, you know, at least she, she had some papers, right? She had some paper trail. Um, and she, she also mentioned that, uh, unfortunately, actually, I forget if this was the same person or not, um, let me just check real fast. Well, I'm not certain, but uh, there was one uh, uh, one line in there that stuck out at me where you know, the the Chinese prison guards were forcing other Uyghur women to help them do their bidding. So they would have the Uyghur women get the other women that would were to be raped, bring them to an area of the camp that was uh, without cameras, tie them up to a, you know a, a post, remove their clothing. And then wait outside while the person got raped. So it's it was even it was even like dirtier than rape when you are now a forced accessory of rape, on top of being raped occasionally. You know, it was really hard to read this article, to be honest. Um, yeah, another inmate uh, had had met, had quoted. Uh, she said. Yes, rape has become a culture. It's a gang rape, and the Chinese police not only rape them, but also electrocute them. They're subject to horrific torture. So they're also being just randomly tortured. Um, I don't know what to say about this, man. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to read shit like that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... I, I find it difficult to read uh, stories about sexual abuse as well. So... Um, it is uh, pretty terrible if all if all that's true. Um, now, I also read stuff about forced sterilization mm-hmm. yeah. about people. Mm-hmm. What do you have you read? Have you heard about that? Yeah, actually, similar dude that that helped uncover a lot of this um, data and get a lot of the what? a lot of these um, Rovers wait Rovers wait. Moron. <laughs> um, fucking buck versus bell type stuff yeah totally um so this guy mr zens he he was also super instrumental in getting a lot of those firsthand um accounts for that bbc um uh article uh but he also has another article on bbc or at least some of his report um was published there and he made this report that um combined uh, some official regional data uh, some policy documents and firsthand interviews with um, ethnic minority women. And um, a lot of it was alleging that um, the Uyghur women and other other minorities in the area were being threatened with, you know, either you have an abortion or you go to one of those camps. And some of it was around birth quotas. This part gets confusing to me because as I understand it, the birth quotas, um, the, the one child um, only... Uh, 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 program was was exclusive to Han Chinese for many years, um, but uh, I also read in the same article that even people who weren't outside of the you know birth quotas um, were still being um, forced to abort. Um, 
or in some cases, uh, even before there was, uh, you know, a, a pregnancy, they were um, involuntarily fitted with uh, IUDs, so intrauterine devices, um, so contraceptives, basically. Um, and uh, some have alleged having been sterilized through surgery. And, you know, the, a lot of these are firsthand accounts, obviously. Um, but, you know, after reading some of Zenz's work and, and looking through some of those articles, I think he does a really good job at trying to cor- not prove, but, cor- but de- definitely corroborate, you know, and, and the types of questions that they ask and, you know, the types of, of documents and, and proof that they're able to obtain from these people, get it so that it's, it's at least convincing. It's worth, you know, paying attention to. And if this is the case that they were having forced sterilization, then it starts to kind of make sense to call it a quasi-genocide, right? It's just just maybe not a killing today, but, you know, the culling of a future generation. So something I just uh, pulled up. So vigorous policing of mosques. So this is in the Intercept article. I wanted to read this because we touched on this earlier, including tight regulation of who can enter an observation of how the congregants pray with the goal of lowering attendance, as you said. And then another example of hyper-policing, watching people's online behavior requiring knives in restaurants to be kept on chains. Regular so wait, 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 stop, stop, for... stop. Knives on chains. So like, like when you go to a bank and they put the pen on a, on a chain so you don't steal the pen, they do the same thing at a restaurant with knives? Yeah, according to this police report, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Re- regular home visits to inspect for religious items like prayer mats and books. Ooh. Well... You know what they say about China? It's not free. <laughs> I mean, look, look. Uh, we could we could talk about like the blowback. And but the, yeah, that, the sexual like, assault stuff is awful. Dude, is, is 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 really gross. I mean, off putting. All of it terrible. is all of it is awful, and just the 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 sheer volume of things like th- for this to be fake, it would have to be by and large. The, so many crisis actors like, have to like be so many actors so so many, many crisis actors like so many media um like writing different shit so many falsified documents uh so many falsified google satellite images you know like it's just so improbable that it's you know, like the 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 total denial of this situation i think is a little naive um we can definitely talk about the, um, you know, how we can have an open conversation about how the U.S.'s reaction or how the world's reaction to, you know, what's going on or what's alleged to have been going on in, in China, in Xinjiang. We can talk about like what what's the what's in it for us? You know, what's the angle there? We can. I think that's a fair conversation to have, but like I don't want to have the conversation about whether or not some fucked up shit is happening to the Uyghurs in China. I think that, to me, that's abundantly clear. You know, what do you think the implications are of Mike Pompeo on the last day of the Trump um, administration, you know, throwing the grenade in the room and, and leaving and saying, oh yeah, China's a genocider. 
What do you, what do you take it? What was your take on that? I'm not exactly sure what his take was, um, or what he was trying to accomplish there. Um, with Mike Pompeo, there's always some reason why he does things. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he's not doing it because he gives a shit about Uyghurs or Muslims in China. Listen, the military industrial complex, they're experts on taking advantage of situations. They're using it not out of um, sympathy or actual um, care for these people, but more so their own uh, financial, personal and career and financial gains. Um, that's what I think. China's terrible. I'm not one of these people who are, you know, as much as I critique um, a lot of U.S. foreign policy decisions, I I don't go back and be like, oh, well, China is a good state because <laughs> they stand up to the U.S. empire. I'm not anti-American to the point where I would look at China as a more model state than the U.S. Um, I just think that there are actors that are using this uh, massive mistreatment for their own agenda. And that's what I take from Mike Pompeo uh, calling this a genocide before his last day in office. Because Mike Pompeo is going to get a job after this. Well, that's what I want to know. Where gonna, is his job? What Mike is Pompeo is going to get a job working for some think tank most likely. Or maybe he'll he'll work for Raytheon. Maybe he'll work for Lockheed Martin. Maybe he'll be he'll have some nice job. Maybe he'll run for president in twenty twenty four. That's not going to happen. Which was the second He's article that came up when I googled Mike Pompeo new job just now. <laughs> He's not going to run for president. I have I don't know who's going to run for president in two thousand twenty four. Um, I don't really think there's a clear person who who uh, has captivated the GOP, but it certainly we got four years. is not Mike Pompeo. We got four years. Maybe it's Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney is very popular with, with a lot of Republicans nowadays, right? Liz Cheney, the daughter of Dick Old Cheney, Richard Cheney. Uh, it could be the maybe the new— Former like, CEO— yeah, I mean, what do you say? She she seems like the establishment pick, right? No, I'm joking. She's awful. She's an awful person. She's an awful father, and she's everyone hates her. Right. She has a nine percent approval rating. Well, I wonder who's, she's who's the most more... disliked. She's the most disliked person in the Republican Party. Mm. That's the joke. The the she's opposite side of it. The, the opposite side of it would be, um, maybe like Lauren Boebert, the the QAnon one. Is she an actual QAnon one? Yeah. I don't know. Everyone, the media just claims this stuff. I don't really believe it whenever they say someone's QAnon. I don't even really know what QAnon is to this day. Like, I don't know what QAnon is. It's a joke on the internet. I wouldn't know what QAnon was. I wouldn't know what, I know what QAnon is. Like, I hear, like, they have conspiracy theories about pedophile, you know, pedophiles in the government and all this. Um, I wouldn't know what QAnon was unless CNN didn't report on it. I, I would have no fucking idea what Q, the QAnon was unless CNN reported on it 24-7. Because you're not Because now that Trump's man. gone, they need to like just 
Opal QAnon. I, uh, they're overstating QAnon's uh, mind warping abilities and their threat. Uh, we need to re-educate them. I've literally heard this. Literally heard this on CNN. So um, in Park Slope, you know, I live in a very liberal neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Signs have switched from Black Lives Matter to treason is punishable by death. <laughs> I'm joking. I don't actually. I haven't seen that yet. But that, yeah. I, the fact that you say yet. I can see that. I can see <laughs> yeah. that being a sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the what oh, was man. the um what was the uh, uh the the adage it's like never let a good crisis go to waste you know it's like China taking advantage of the relatively I mean the attacks that ETIM committed were fucking heinous but when when compared to you know is this the is this the entire population of the Uyghurs you know is this the makeup of the entire population is this justifiable to oppress you know, uh, a loose ethnic group or a, a minority group. You know, uh, I think the answer is probably no, definitely no. And and you know, I think a lot of that shit kind of circles around. You know, it's it's like I, I consider myself fairly liberal, but when I hear people saying that we should deprogram people, or in your case, you know, pretty frequently saying that you know treason is, you know. <laughs> punishable by death like it's like dude shut up <laughs> you know like you can't use you can't use this crisis or the or these issues as a means to just throw away morality or throw away like consistency <laughs> you know what i mean it's, it's it's not a good route man slippery slope just to go back to china i think what china is doing is that they are mechanizing the the apparatus to assimilate people into a nation state, but they're doing it with a very blunt object right. in front of the entire world. Right. I mean, I'd argue that and, there is no correct way to force people into an ideology. Like your ideology just has to be like legitimately better in order for people and people have to come free willing. But I'd, I'd agree with you in saying that, if there was a correct way to force people into your ideology, it's certainly not whatever it is that they're doing. <laughs> I guess you could say you could make the argument that schools are public schools are like are are literally re-education, camps. just regular education camps. But it, that's, that's, education that's camps. different, though. You know, I think I think that's yeah. I'm joking. I'm being facetious. I think it's different. <laughs> it's like taking adults and saying we don't like you for your minority group or your religion and we think we think you constitute a threat so we're going to take you adult you know without your consent force you into a place where you can't leave and we're going to make you say the pledge of the chinese allegiance you know and we're going to make you speak chinese because this is china and we're going to make you hang up a picture of mao because why the fuck not why the fuck not? All right, we are over an hour and 40 minutes on this episode, so I say we wrap things up. Maybe have a little post-show conversation afterwards. Yeah, sounds good. On the Patreon. Um, all right, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Bro History. We really appreciate all the reviews that have been coming in. It really does make our day when you guys uh, take 
a moment to rate and review the podcast. Um, again, it is the number one way to, to help grow this show. So if you're on Apple, an Apple device, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Give us a five star. And um, hey, say, hey, hey, boys, good job. Keep on doing it. Um, it keeps us going, and it really does help drive traffic to the podcast uh, when you guys continue to rate and review the show. Um, so uh, keep on doing that. Really appreciate your, your support. Um, we have a Patreon, Patreon app, Bro History, if you want to support, support us further. Uh, we're doing post-show episodes, so uh, just continuing the conversation, seeing where it goes. Um, so if you want that, if you want more content, you can get an RSS feed and have it, uh, direct delivered right to your, uh, podcast device. Um, so, uh, you could join us on Patreon, uh, for as low as a dollar a month. Um, and then you also get access to our Slack account where we all, uh, shoot the shit and just converse. It's kind of like our bro history public square. Uh, so, uh, you can support us that way. Links will be in the show notes. And uh, Danny, anything to add Just, before we leave? Uh, I made a mistake earlier on in the beginning of the show, and uh, the hashtag Free Britney documentary is airing on Hulu, not Netflix. So, Oh, how dare you? Check that out on Friday. <laughs> Something as important as that. <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. Be safe, be well, and we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.